Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 20. And before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your holy scriptures, for the very words of God that you have given to us. We pray, our Father, that you would bless your word to us, that we would be given ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 20, starting our reading at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, we would read that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And... We should um, read that verse in the New Testament alongside the last of the commandments. You shall not covet. You shall not covet a man's house. You shall not covet his land, his wife, nor anything that belongs to your neighbour. You shall not covet. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you um, are wondering what might be one of the secrets of some kind of happiness in your Christian life as you're going forward, well, I'll offer you at least one little piece of advice. Give up on worrying about 
equality. Give up on worrying about it. Give up on worrying about whether or not God treats everybody in exactly the same way. Okay, God is not a mum dividing up dessert after dinner. You know, a mother dividing up an apple pie. If there's six people in the family, very carefully segments that pie into six equal pieces because if she doesn't, you know what's going to happen. One of the kids is going to say, his bit is bigger than mine. And the kid is, and the kid who's got the slightly bigger bit is going to go, yeah, and it's just right. And there's going to be some fighting and some arguing and some squabbling. So mum divides the apple pie very, very carefully. But what you need to understand is that God deals with each and every person exactly as he sees fit. He gives to each and every person exactly as he sees fit. Some people do get, as it were, an easy Christian life. Some people get a harder Christian life. Some people get more opportunity. Some people get less opportunity. In the parables that Jesus gave about the servants, remember in one of those parables, one was given ten, one was given five, and one was given one. And there's that tiny little line after there that says, each according to his ability. God doled it out as God saw fit. God deals with everyone individually and he deals with nations as a whole. He's God. He can do this. Job 41.11 reads, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Everything upon the face of the whole earth is mine. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? It's actually repeated in Romans chapter 11, verse 35 by the Apostle Paul, where Paul is arguing for the grace of God and for God's purposes in saving his elect. Paul is basically arguing that God treats people as he sees fit and nobody has the right to argue. God will do as God will do. And the clay does not get to yell back at the potter. That's not fair. We don't get to say that to God. It's fair. Why is it fair? Why is it fair? Well, what does God owe you? You're right. If you are a sinner, and I will assume you are, if you're guilty of any kind of sin whatsoever, and I will assume you are because the scripture tells me that you are just like I am, if we are guilty of any kind of sin whatsoever, God owes us nothing except judgment. It's as simple as that. If you want justice, if you want to demand God be fair in all his dealings, well, here's what's going to happen. If God were to be fair in all his dealings, somehow or other you will not survive the day and by this afternoon you will be in hell. That will be God being fair in all his dealings. You get that? You understand that? If you want to demand that God be fair and just in all his dealings, give up. You won't see tomorrow. Your destination is hell. That's justice. Grace and mercy is a good thing. Anything that does not result in us coming under the judgment and condemnation of God and ending up permanently in hell is a good thing. Grace and mercy. So if we deserve nothing but judgment 
and eternal condemnation. But God gives us something that is not judgment and eternal condemnation. We've gotten what we don't deserve. We've gotten more than we deserve. We've been given a gift. We've been graced. We've been blessed. God has given us more and we should be rejoicing and thankful. And such should be our rejoicing and our thankfulness that we're not actually looking at the people around about us. We're just looking to Jesus and saying, thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for me. Thank you, Lord, that I have eternal life in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are my assurance. You are my promise. Thank you, Lord, that you are my future, my life, my great high priest. Thank you, Lord. Whatever you have given anyone else, you have given me eternal life. And for that, I praise you. Now, you might wonder, okay, Scott, why have you gone off on this little um, journey here, this little trip? Well, think of context. Think of the cities of the plain. Think of Lot. How did God deal with the cities of the plain and how did God deal with Lot? The cities of the plain were destroyed and Lot, in um, what I would consider to be his stubbornness, Lot ends up isolated and ends up um, producing accursed races. The Ammonites and the Moabites in the scripture are the enemies of the people of God. Some of them are certainly saved. For example, Ruth was a Moabite. But they're the people who are the enemies of the people of God. Lot ends up producing offspring by his own daughters. The last thing we're told about Lot in the Old Testament is embarrassing and disgusting. Lot, as it were, though we know that he is a believer, we're told in Second Peter that he's to be considered righteous. Lot, as it were, was allowed to uh, struggle in the mud. God left Lot struggling in the mud. Lot had chosen some, to, to do some disobedient things and God left him, as it were, in the consequence of some of his sin. But here's Abraham. Here's Abraham. Abraham is being a little foolish once again. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12 what Abraham did? Let's just turn there very quickly. Genesis chapter 12. Starting at verse 10. Genesis 12.10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You know, 
we've got an old saying. You hear it all the time, once bitten, twice shy. Once bitten, twice shy. And wouldn't we all like to think that we're wise enough not to repeat our sins? Wouldn't we all like to think that we learn our lessons and go on and never, ever, ever put our feet in the mud again? We'd like to think that. But let's be honest. Let's just be bluntly honest. We know the truth. We know that we are not anywhere near as strong as we would like to be. We know that should for a second God cease to restrain us from the foolishness that is bound up in our hearts, we will step back into that mud. It just will happen. We know that we are not anywhere near as Christ-like as we ought to be. And so... The proverb about the pig returning to its muck, about the dog returning to its vomit, can be applied to believers. We wish we learned our lessons, and there are times when we're caught out sinning and we're caught, you know, red-handed as it were. And we're forced to repent. And you sort of think to yourself, never, never, never again, never will I relax, never will I let that sin get a grip on me, never, never, never again. And quite often that repentance and that uh, resolve, it lasts for a goodly period of time. It might even last for years, years and years. (laughs) And then one day you relax. One day you forget to fight. One day you forget about your resolve. One day you forget about the pain of your sin and before you know it, You're doing it all over again. And it's times like that you actually might even wonder if you're even a Christian. You know, often if you're repeating a sin, the conviction that comes afterwards is twice as heavy, I might say it that way. The conviction that comes afterwards is painful. Well, here's Abraham repeating repeating the mistakes of the past all over again. He ought not to have lied to Pharaoh and he ought not to have lied here to this king, Abimelech, king of Gerar. He ought to have had the simple, forthright honesty to say, this is my wife. But look at how he um, comes to this decision to sin. It's, it actually involves a little bit of arrogance. And once again, I say to you, as a Christian, and let's try and be honest. Isn't it tempting to think that you are the way you are because there's something good in yourself? Isn't it tempting to think that you do actually have the right to judge people? I've, I've got a friend who's a solicitor. I was talking to him a couple of weeks back. And he was telling me that he was dealing with one of his clients and the client was considering suicide. There was a divorce going on, the marriage had separated, the wife was saying all kinds of bad things about this guy. The solicitor himself did not think that any of them were actually true. He thought she was just playing the manipulative legal game to get more out of him. He said, and this guy, he said, he's considering suicide. And he said, and I've known him for 20-odd years. This is a decent man, an upright man, a hardworking man, a, a, a qualified and professional man. He said, and I don't know why he's so inclined to want to commit suicide. I don't know why it's hit him so hard. And, I, you know, I, I sort of tried to explain to the guy over the phone, Paul. I said, look, 
probably in his line of work and in the things that he's done and with the success that he's had, he's actually fallen into the pattern of thinking that these things happen to other people who don't measure up to his own standards. Probably he's basically fallen into the pattern of thinking that he's better than that and nothing like this could ever have happened to him because he does what is right. And now it's all blown up in his face and it's hurting him very deeply. Abraham says at verse 11 of chapter 20, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. What would that be? I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. There's something in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't there? Something about do not judge, lest the same judgment be enacted upon you in full measure. Abraham has come to this place and decided that they can't possibly be faithful, God-fearing people. They can't possibly be the kind of people who would do what is right. Abraham has come to this place, and remember, he's just, remember, it tells us that Abraham went to the hillside and looked down over the valley and he saw the destruction of the cities of the plain. He's come to this place and he's thought, I'm different to these people. And these people are wicked. And these people may well kill me and take my wife and my household and all that I have. And I've got a fair bit of stuff. And so I don't have to deal honestly with these people. Remember, I don't have to deal honestly with them. I'm not in the wrong if I tell a little half truth. But understand, and and we know these things, and I I realise I'm laying it on, but we know these things. Half-truths are lies. Half-truths are lies. When when we use half-truths to cover our tracks, they're actually lies. Okay? And it's an old, old trick that comes from the devil himself. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. When he spoke to Eve, he spoke half-truths. He spoke half-truths. You know, concerning that tree of life. And then concerning that tree, I'm sorry, of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from the tree, well, you'll be more like God. Later on, God himself says they've eaten from the tree and now they've gotten knowledge that they ought not to have had and they're setting themselves up as gods. A half-truth is a lie. So he tells them a half-truth. I'm closely related to Sarah. She's my uh, sister, not my wife. And then the king takes his wife. So what's the contrast here? Why am I um, sort of coming to this conclusion that God deals with people as he so desires? Well, think of this. As I said, Lot was left to fall into the mud. God does not leave Abraham there, does he? Abraham is God's chosen man. Abraham is the one whom God has called to walk before me and be righteous. And God is not going to leave his chosen one 
in a mess. God is going to intervene. Who's in the wrong here? Abraham's in the wrong. He's certainly in the wrong and he's repeating past mistakes, which actually makes it worse. He should have known better. He's certainly in the wrong. But God gets involved. You know, my friends, what a mess we would be in if God left us in our own muck. What a mess we would be in if God left us in our own muck. Honestly, he gets involved in each and every one of our lives. He gets involved. He is constantly working providence to our advantage. If we are in Christ, we are his beloved children. And he doesn't deal with us the same as he deals with everyone else in the world. He doesn't deal with us exactly the same as in terms of being individuals either. For example, we're told that greater and more stricter judgments fall upon people who would presume to teach from the word. For example, there's a warning to me. God gets involved and digs Abraham out of the hole or lifts Abraham out of the hole that Abraham had dug. Abraham judges that these people are not godly at all, therefore I'm not doing the wrong thing by concealing truth, gets himself in a mess. His wife, the, this, this woman, Sarah, God has, I mean, Abraham has promises concerning Sarah. What's the promise concerning Sarah? That she was going to bear the promised son. She was going to bear the one who will inherit the promises of Abraham. And Abraham allows a king to take her into the harem. You know, that's, that's some kind of failure of faith. That's some kind of failure in sanctification and obedience. But God rescues both Abraham and Sarah and blesses them in their foolishness. Have you been rescued? Have you been blessed in your foolishness? Though you deserve something different, yet God gives you grace and mercy and a role as a son in his kingdom. There's some really interesting things here in the passage. I just want us to have a look at a few things. Look at um, in chapter 20 of Genesis verses 4 and 5. King Abimelech, look at what he says. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. He hadn't come near Sarah. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I didn't come near her. They told me stories. I mean, <laughs> I... I I've got to be honest, I wonder how much integrity and innocence a king has when he just sees a woman through the window and says, I like that one, bring her to me. You know, when King David did that with Bathsheba, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good thing to do. But he says, I did this. I haven't come near her. Now, look at what God says in reply at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. I wonder if there was irony there. 
And it was I who kept you sin kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Interesting. What does Abimelech say? I did something. I didn't touch the woman. I heard their story. I believed them. I haven't come near the woman. What does God say? Yeah, the reason you haven't come near the woman is I did not let you. You did what you wanted to do and I restrained you. You get the point? Do you see what I'm saying here? We think we make our own decisions and certainly we do. I don't deny that people make decisions. But God also makes decisions. We do as we please, we like to say. But God also does as he pleases. And God is far more powerful than you or I. And so even though each of us makes our own decisions, yet each decision is made according to the will of God in one way or another. I've spoken of Abraham and said, well, here he's fallen into error. He's fallen into some kind of sin. Do you think he did that apart from the will of God? This is Abraham's journey of spiritual life. This is Abraham's journey from from being originally a pagan who worshipped stars and the moon in a foreign land to being a believer who worships the living God in the promised land. You know, like you and I were on this journey. Where, where were we outside of Christ? We were in the world. We were in condemnation and we are now in Christ. We're on this journey to eternal life in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth where we'll see the face of our Lord. And so in terms of discipline, God, I think, here is permitting Abraham to be tested, to fall into error. He's rescuing Abraham. He's convicting Abraham of his preserving grace. He's convicting Abraham that he ought not to become proud, that he ought not to judge other peoples. Remember, these promises that Abraham has received is that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations. These people that Abraham has judged as having no fear of God at all, they're one of the nations that God has promised to bless. Somehow or other, through Abraham himself, all the nations are to be blessed through Abraham. So Abraham is here being disciplined according to the will of God disciplined and taught to rely only on God, disciplined and taught not to trust in his own wisdom, not to be proud, disciplined and taught to be faithful, to be humble, to be simply obedient, to trust in God. You know, the kind of discipline that all of us as believers need and come under Because we love our God in that reading we took from Hebrews chapter 12 where it speaks of us becoming the children of the living God. It says if we're not disciplined, we have no claim to childhood. We're not children of the living God. We must be disciplined, it says. And remember, it speaks of discipline being unpleasant whilst you suffer it. But in the end, it brings the peaceful gift of righteousness. You know, when parents discipline their children, The children don't turn around and say, Father, I thank you, I needed that spanking, it's done me the world of good. It didn't seem pleasant to them at the time, 
It's not pleasant at that moment to be suffering the discipline. But years later, you look back on it and you understand something. I was being taught a lesson and I needed to learn it. It was worthwhile. Wasn't pleasant at the time, but it's bringing forth the fruit. Praise God. Abraham is being disciplined. Imagine. I mean, imagine. He says to the king, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And what does the king just, what does the king say to him? Well, you know, your God, he actually spoke to me last night. You're accusing me of having no fear of God. Your God was speaking to me last night. And your God has told me to do certain things. And I'm going to do them. You judged me, Abraham. You assumed that I was an outright, absolute, sinful pagan. Yet your God spoke to me last night. He has told me to do things and I'm going to do them. At that moment, I'm pretty sure Abraham felt about that tall. You know, sometimes you do things and you feel like digging a hole and burying yourself. Don't want to be seen, don't want to be heard from. You've embarrassed yourself in some way. He's embarrassed himself. Let's look at uh, a little bit more in the text. Down at verse 14 of chapter 20. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to... (coughs) Pardon me, I'll just have a quick drink. (coughs) And returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Why? (coughs) He's making repayment for the harm that he has done. Now, once again, I'm, I'm going to open another Bible to the King James reading of this because the King James reading actually gets it literal and the ESV at this moment attempts to theologize or make the reading easier. The ESV, chapter 20, verse 16, reads, To Sarah he says, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. That is not literal. That is an attempt to make a difficult sentence easy to understand. Here's what it does say literally, and I'm reading the King James. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. That's literal. That's actually what it says. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. Okay, so what is the king saying? He's saying to Sarah, that your husband is your covering. Not stories. Don't go around saying, I'm his sister, he's my brother. Your husband is to be your covering. The king is saying, in my land, we actually respect marriage. 
We don't just steal another person's wife. Your husband is your covering. He is to thee a covering of the eyes. He is your veil. He is your protection. Cling to your husband, in other words. The fact that your husband is taking you back is an indication of the fact that, one, I have not harmed you, I have not sexually assaulted you, I have not taken you to my bed. Your husband is your covering. Tell the truth in my land. Speak the truth. He will be to you a covering. He is to thee a covering. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read what the Apostle Paul has to say about a relationship between husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying to you, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here King Abimelech is giving Abraham and Sarah a little bit of a lecture on the marriage relationship. Own one another as husband and wife. Wife, submit to your husband and speak truthfully and honourably about him. He is your covering. Remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians speaks of the church being presented to Jesus himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. My friends, we're clothed in the name and the righteousness of Christ. God is our covering. God was Abraham's covering and Sarah being married to Abraham was under God's covering through her husband, Abraham. Paul says that this this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. And he says that immediately after quoting from Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. My friends, the unity of marriage, the oneness of marriage is indicative of the oneness that we have with Christ. It's not the same because the oneness that we have with Christ is deeper and even more powerful. It's deeper and even more powerful. The church being the bride of Christ 
is one with the second person of the Godhead. Washed in his blood, clothed in his righteousness, brought into our relationship with God through his works. Christ is our God, our King, our Saviour, our Redeemer. Paul speaks of marriage being something that points to this. And so though our relationship in marriage is as close as a human relationship can possibly be, husbands and wives are one in the eyes of God. And a husband is commanded to be Christ-like toward his wife, washing her in the word of God, loving her, building her up in Christ. Even at the same time, wives are commanded to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands be godly, wives be submissive. Why? Well, because you don't want the world to be destroying your relationship. You don't want the world to be laying its hands upon you or your children. You don't want the world to be separating you one from another. That's not what God desires. I go back once more to the theme of authority. Authority is structured. And you walk in the authority of God when you walk in obedience to God. A husband is not given authority over his family to be abusive, nasty, proud or a jerk. That is not God's plan. A husband is given authority over his family to be Christ-like, to be faithful, to be one who brings them to and brings to them the word of God. One who does what is right. One who seeks to imitate Christ. And oh, we imitate badly. I know that. We imitate badly. And uh, it's funny, but these wives who are told to submit to their husbands, they know how badly we imitate. And they remind us from time to time, and we need the reminders. If you don't want to listen to what your wife has to say to you, you're a fool of a husband. Because God has given her to you to be your helpmate through this life. Hear your wife. It doesn't mean you have to obey your wife, but you have to hear her. Husbands, we pray to the Lord our God. He hears us. He doesn't obey us, but he hears us. My friends, in this, the gospel is demonstrated. Think about anyone you know whom you would consider to be something of a happy person. I mean it. Something of a happy person, something of a contented person. What do they come from? What kind of life are they living? Well, they're probably Christians. But the most blessed institution in terms of human relationships, is the family, husband, wife, children, under the word of God, under the authority of God. My friends, be honest as you face the world. Half-truths don't help. Trust in God. Trust in God's preserving grace. Just because God will rescue us, just as he's rescued Abraham here, does not mean we get to take the grace of God for granted. (laughs) All right, The message here is not sin as you please and don't worry about it. That's not the message. But the message here is this. 
When we do fall into sin, our God is gracious and merciful and he will rescue us. For we are in Christ and he cannot deny Christ. He loves our God, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, when you think about the sin that so easily ensnares, the sin that just seems to keep jumping up and grabbing you in your life, my friends, we've got to learn to hate that sin and we've got to be on guard against it. We've got to be diligent. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be willing to fight against it. All right, the moment we get slack, the moment we get lazy, the moment we take things for granted, the moment we start to assume that we're better than the people around about us, we will walk straight back into it. Every time. Every time. Though we have been changed, though we are no longer what once we were, yet all of us know that we are not yet what we ought to be. We are not yet the perfect imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not yet been taken into the presence of God and made complete. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. My friends, let's be diligent. Let's try, strive, struggle to avoid sin. But let's also rest assured When we fall into sin, God will lift us up again. He doesn't throw his people away. He's not fickle. He doesn't love you yesterday and hate you today. He loves me. He loves me not. That's not God. He is a gracious and merciful father. And remember, often when he allows us to fall into sin, it's for our discipline. It's to teach us something. It's to make us more like Christ. Even in these things, God works because all things. Let's finish at Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll pick it up at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Go back to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not only the good things, not only the nice days, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now you ask the question, what might be that good? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. All things working together for good to make us more like Jesus, to conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, we take nothing for granted. 
Yet we go on in this faith, for we know that we belong to God and that all things are being made to work for good, for our for God's purposes, to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. And so, my friends, praise God for his goodness and his mercy. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that though we be sinners, though we lack wisdom, though we often go astray, turn aside, return to our old errors, our old sins, our old wickedness, yet you are gracious and you are merciful and you rescue us and you deliver us and you make all things work together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Father, we thank you and we praise you that this blessing is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.